Thank you for tuning in to the Preaching Workshop Podcast. If you want to find more information, head to graymere.com slash pwpodcast for more downloads and information about this year's uh, sessions. This is the Psalms and our understanding, preaching the genres of the Psalms with Jordan Guy. Thank you, Andrew. And I want to thank all those at Graymere and others who may be responsible for putting this together. I'll go ahead and take this off. There, can you hear me now? Uh, it is so good to see uh, many familiar faces from my days at Horizons and uh, Fried Hardeman. I'm looking forward to getting to know uh, many of the rest of you uh, during our time together today. If you think I'm glowing up here, it's just because I didn't know that if you spend uh, four hours out in the snow with your kids, that's going to create quite a sunburn on you for a few days. And you can see where I was wearing sunglasses too, probably from where you are, maybe not at home here. But uh, just know that this is... Uh, um, not hurting, and I'm just uh, tickled to be here with you today. So my assignment, as Andrew said, is to help us to appreciate the various genre of the Psalms and to also um, find some different ways to preach the various genre of the Psalms. I am getting an echo up here. I'm going to try to flip this around, see if that helps a little bit. All right, is everyone uh, able to find the slides okay from where you're at? This will be for you to have at home as well as uh, during our time together. I may move quickly through some of these, and so I want to make sure that I can tell my students, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can uh, utilize those slides and then just add to it anything you might find of value today. So one of the first things that uh, we, we should recognize about the Psalter is that these are 150, no more, no less, exactly 150 emotional expressions. and. Uh, it, it runs the gambit of every possible emotion. We're going to talk about seven of those emotions today. But if you're like me, uh, maybe you're not always good at expressing your emotions. Uh, just know that the Psalter helps us learn to articulate our emotions to our spouses, to our kids, uh, to our church members, and also helps us understand our church members' emotions, whether you have any training in counseling or, or not. If you're like me and just you know work within the church context or within the school context, you're going to deal with these various emotions, so it's helpful to have scripture that helps you connect with those emotions as well. And they're emotional expressions of faith to God. They're not empty emotions. They're not an end in themselves. They help direct our attention toward God himself. So I haven't tried this yet, but here's uh, a workshop idea for you as you think about ways of preaching the various genre of the Psalms for uh, a younger audience or maybe for an audience who's just uh, very in tune with uh, various emojis that are out there for text messaging as well as for uh, social media. So you might connect some sermons about the confidence psalm, uh, psalms to the happy uh, emoji. And so you could talk about how these psalms, like Psalm 23, uh, are all about hope and confidence in times like the ones we're dealing with right now that may not seem so happy. The penitential psalms are best expressed through the sorrowful emoji, the sadness and, and helplessness, it seems, at times. The imprecatory psalms may be expressed through the anger emoji, this idea that it doesn't seem fair that things are happening the way that they should. The covenant psalm through the thankfulness emoji, gratitude toward God. We have Torah, wisdom, and creation psalms, which can be dealt with on their own. I'll be treating them together because if you learn how to preach one of these, you can preach all of them. And so you might think about the amazement or the awe emoji as you preach these lessons. The ascent psalm can be communicated through one of the most popular emojis, the laughing slash crying emoji. You're so grateful to come into the presence of God's people, as many of you are today seeing friends, reconnecting with loved ones, that you're almost in tears out of gratitude for this assembly. And then the enthronement psalms, praising God for who he is and for his Davidic king can be expressed through the praise emoji toward the Lord himself. So here's one idea as we began just to think about, and one of the most important messages I want to communicate today should be stated up front, uh, and that is what the seven genre of the Psalms that I'm going to be emphasizing today are all about is passing down coping mechanisms of faith for future generations. I don't know about you, but when I look around, I, I see in myself and I see in others uh, a failure to be able to cope with the various emotions that we feel. Sometimes we're told not to feel certain things. 
um, or to shut them out until they've exploded to a point that they can't be handled anymore. So I, I teach around 200 students every semester and probably have 50 of them in my office at any given time throughout the semester because of an emotion, whether it's doubt or fear, or anger or jealousy, uh, and they just don't know what to do with it. And so they go to their Bible pro professor to find out if it's okay to feel these kinds of thoughts and what they should do with them. So is there anyone in your church that has an emotion that they're not responding to appropriately? Well, here we have appropriate appropriations of these emotions in faith. This is what God is showing us we should do with these emotions and how all of these emotions are helpful. So one way to think about the Psalms is uh, a generation passing down to the next generation, faithful responses to the various emotions that humans feel. So I want you to think about the way the Psalter came to be as a means of figuring out how you're going to preach this and teach this in your churches. Uh, imagine David as he set out among his sheep to protect them from the lion and the bear, realizing one day that that's the same way the Lord takes care of him. And so over the course of days, weeks, maybe even years, he writes what we know now to be Psalm 23 about how the Lord is his shepherd and cares for him in all circumstances of life. A fellow shepherd overhears him singing this tune and says, I identify with that song. And so he begins to sing it himself until soon many shepherds are singing these psalms together. And then it comes up as a song they sing in church to God. They pass it down to their kids and future generations are singing it until soon it becomes a part of their written canon, a part of the church's canon that we today sing. It began as a song on David's lips and his heart from God for God's people. And then soon it becomes a song that we can all identify with and sing and pray together. Um, imagine if your song became that kind of influential song in the lives of other people today. And this is true for other worship leaders in Israel. We have songs attributed to Asaph, Heman, uh, Ethan, who are worship leaders who wrote songs, who directed the chorus of Israel, Solomon, Moses, and the sons of Korah, all of whom had direct connection to the tabernacle or temple worship. And then other authors whose names are not given, but notice the authors who are identified are seven. Again, just like the seven emotions that we talked about, we have seven authors who are contributing to Israel's faithful collection of songs and prayers over this course of beginning in their own mind and then eventually spreading out to the community. We can talk more about that later if you'd like to. So why 150 songs? No more, no less. These are clearly not the only ones that have been written. We know that Solomon himself wrote over a thousand according to 1 Kings. These are not the only ones that have been preserved through the exile, though one might think that as they were collecting these, when Nebuchadnezzar came in to Jerusalem and destroyed in 586, that he destroyed their written records, maybe the other songs, leaving only 150. But we know of songs in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Judges, the song of Moses and Deborah. And these songs also existed through the exile, but don't find their way into the Psalter. They're elsewhere in the Bible, but not in this collection. So what is this collection of 150 songs? Could it be that these were the songs that uh, people resonated with the most? Maybe they were the songs that were requested on Sunday night singing. You know, whenever you have the Sunday night singing nights, you have the same songs basically requested every month. You know, we maybe have here a collection of all of these songs that Israel loved so much and they passed it down from generation to generation. And so these are the 150 best, maybe like it used to be the top hits of the, the 90s or the top hits of the 2000s. Maybe these are the top hits of Israel, their favorite songs that seem to, everyone seemed to identify with. And also it seems like these were collected for a purpose. They seem to be arranged in a certain order to communicate a certain message. And so while we have a canon of maybe a, a thousand songs in our songbook or maybe more than that in the paperless hymnal, uh, we all have a canon within a canon, maybe only 150 or so we actually sing, which might be an interesting exercise for you song leaders or even those who are uh, preachers and teachers to arrange your services so that you incorporate some of those other songs that maybe we, we don't sing as much or preach about those other songs and the history and message behind them. But these 150 seem to resonate with Israel for some reason. 
We also get a clue of how this book was formed based on doxologies that occur at pivotal points, at five different points within the book, basically moments of praise, pausing, praising, reflecting on what the previous few chapters or songs were all about making this into essentially five books. And so if you look at your English translations, you'll see in chapter one, it says this is book one. And then in chapter 42, book two. And then uh, chapter 73, it's book three and so on. And so one way this could have happened is maybe they borrowed songbooks from different parts of Israel. Maybe you have one songbook from the United Kingdom period, and then another songbook from the Northern Kingdom, a songbook from the Southern Kingdom a songbook during exile, a songbook during their return. And then you put those songbooks together to reflect different time periods, different experiences, different people's favorite songs, coming up with the best hits of Israel, the favorite songs of Israel. Or maybe it was always one book, one songbook, and it's been divided into five parts to communicate a certain message. Why five parts and not six or four? Well, we also have a five-fold Torah, and so some have argued that maybe this is reflecting a emotional, a musical Torah. So while you have Genesis through Deuteronomy that communicates the story of God's people from the earliest beginnings all the way to the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, maybe here you have all of the emotions that the Israelites felt during that time. Or maybe you have here a five-act play telling the story of Israel. And so some have divided this up to tell the story of Israel from its earliest beginnings, which the first book really does talk about their time in Egypt, their time of oppression, and then moves toward life in the promised land under a monarchy. The destruction of the temple and exile that led the people to either doubt or hope that there would be restoration. Till finally there is this restoration period. I challenge my students to tell their stories using only psalms. Could you tell your spiritual journey using only songs? What song would best describe the day of your birth? And it could be from any era, it could be any genre, but would it be a song that is happy because the day of your birth was happy or maybe it was a challenge for mom and dad? Maybe it wasn't such a, a wonderful, beautiful day outside. What about your teenage years? What song would express those years best? What about your college life? What song would describe those days? What about your young adulthood? What about retirement? What about the day that you pass? What song do you want sung at your funeral? I think it'd be interesting for every member in our church to tell their spiritual journey using only songs. Spiritual songs as well as secular songs that express what it is they're trying to communicate. Maybe this would be a good church exercise for a homecoming or an anniversary. Tell your church's story using only songs. What were the favorite songs 20 years ago? What are the favorite songs today? What does that tell about your church? What does it tell about the faith of your church? And so in one way, it seems like this is what we have in the Psalter, a collection of Israel's favorite songs telling Israel's story as a way of helping us tell our story of faith in God. There's also an important movement, if you notice this, from the bleak beginnings to deliverance and restoration, which is the same format of a lament psalm itself. Lament psalms never end in lament. They end in hope, if not praise. And so the entire Psalter from beginning to ending begins in sorrow but ends in praise. And this is an important reminder for us that anytime we're praying to God or singing to God, it should never end in hopelessness. And we'll talk more about this in just a moment, but helping our churches and our services not end in hopelessness but in hope and praise, as even the whole Psalter does. Martin Luther said that this book, the book of Psalms, could very well be called a little Bible because what it does from cover to cover is explain the entire story of Israel, the story of faith. I think what he was saying is, you remember growing up how you'd have those little New Testaments and sometimes it would include the, uh, the book of Psalms, sometimes Proverbs if you're lucky, right? But what it was saying was, if you need something from the Old Testament, you need the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms summarizes the Old Testament. Martin Luther would go one step further and say it might even help us summarize the New Testament, the whole Bible, everything that God would have us to learn. I wonder if like the Ethiopian who could uh, be taught by Philip using only Isaiah, if you and I could teach someone the gospel using only the Psalms. Could you use the Psalter to lead someone to faith, to deepen their faith, 
help connect them to God. Martin Luther saw something in the collection, just as the New Testament authors did, as they quote the Psalms more than any other Old Testament book. Next would be Isaiah, then Deuteronomy, then Exodus. But they saw something in the Psalms that taught the story that they were trying to teach in the New Testament about Jesus. So this might be a good challenge for a minister or for our congregants to use the Psalter uh, to teach others about Jesus. So what is the Psalter as I kind of bring this introduction to a close? The introduction I've been emphasizing is that the Psalter is a complete, we have seven authors, seven emotions, seven genres, musical, because we have songs, we have poetic prayers, Torah, it's fivefold intentionally, that reflects the complete story of Israel from its worship leader's perspective. That's really important. You have David, Solomon, other worship leaders telling the story of Israel's faith journey, just as every week you have your worship leaders directing the congregation in their faith journey. It includes the full gambit of human emotion, circumstances, spirituality. It doesn't whitewash their journey. It tells their high moments and their low moments so we can connect with the high moments and the low moments. It includes the full spectrum of God's justice and His mercy. So you see a complete theology in this book. In order to help generations to come, to share in the relationship with God that past faithful generations shared. After all, if you pray like David, if you sing like David, you might very well become like David. And so one of the topics we talk about is how is the Psalter Scripture? (laughs) How are words about God words from God? And one way of addressing that is to say that this comes from the lips of faithful people who knew God intimately. They sang of Him, they prayed toward Him, and if you sing and you pray like them, you'll become as faithful as they were. I had one student a few weeks ago when we were having our Bible study, I asked, do you have any questions? And she said, how do you apply the Psalms? Which is really what we're talking about today. How do you apply the Psalms? I said, this might sound a little trite, but probably the best way to start is just to pray a psalm. Just sing a psalm. You can't go wrong praying the Bible. You can't go wrong singing the Bible. So start with the very words of Scripture. I know I learned to preach by preaching my dad's words first. And so you learn by following the model that you have, and then soon you'll find your own words, and maybe one of you will write a song that will continue to live on and tell the story of your generation for other generations. So we have here a connection, which is what Scripture is, between God and us today by way of prayers and songs of faithful people. Now, as we get into the actual genres themselves, I want you to know there's basically only two types. And if you only preach or know these two types, you really have it. There's the lament psalms and there's the praise psalms. So lament psalms are expressing profound grief over suffering, either caused by the psalmist himself because he has sinned and he needs to be forgiven of his sin, like David in Psalm 51, or because of somebody else, usually identified as the enemy. And we'll see that in many of the psalms, there's no more specificity given than that. It's the enemy. Sometimes the enemy is a person, a nation, uh, another group. Maybe it is uh, death or disease or hardship or misfortune. And so in any given service, you're going to have people who are lamenting over the enemy and some who are lamenting over themselves who have become an enemy to themselves. And so in its most basic form, a lament complains about unjust conditions of life or God's failure from the psalmist's perspective to keep covenant promise. We have to realize the Israelites took their covenant seriously. They believed that as followers of God, they were more advantaged than non-followers of God. And we must believe the same thing. There has to be an advantage to being a follower of God over being a heathen, right? And so they believed that if they were following God like Job said he was, and bad things are happening to him, God is being unjust. He's not keeping his promise to bless those who bless him. So the lament psalm comes from a person who takes the covenant seriously and believes that God has not kept up his end of the deal, or they haven't kept up their end of the deal. 
That's where you get the penitential or the imprecatory psalms. So if you're like me and sometimes forget what imprecatory means, I think about that song we sing about the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on a tack, how he gets pricked on the tack. So the imprecatory psalms are about asking God to prick, to punish the enemy so that they are no longer their enemy. And I want you to notice this, uh, not to write down all of the lament psalms, but just to see that there's about 42 or so lament psalms in the canon, 42 out of 150 total. What does that tell us about the lament psalms in Israel? That's okay. It's okay to lament. Uh, That even they lamented a lot, right? Uh, Almost a third of the Psalter is lament. Now let's compare that to our songbook. How many of our songs in our songbook would you guess are lament psalms? 10% 10% maybe if we're lucky. And, and that and talk about the canon within the canon. What is it 10% of the songs we actually sing or 10% of the song book and we maybe only sing one or two of them? What might that reflect about Israel's worship service itself? If a third or so of their canon was a lament, do you think a third of their services were lament services? Or a third of a service was lament and the other two-thirds praise? You know, looking at someone's songbook, you can tell a lot about them. Someone studied your canon, your songbook that you use. What would they conclude about your faith, about your church service? So it would be interesting for you song leaders or anyone to study the last year's songs. Find out how many were lament, how many are praise. And what does that say about the typical service at our church? And what about the people who are not always feeling praise-filled in those services? More on that in just a moment. So the other type of uh, psalm is the praise psalm. And when I asked my students uh, what their favorite type of psalm was, as you could guess, they said praise. So I said, that's why we don't have many lament psalms in our services, because we prefer praise psalms. These are the Hallel psalms, like hallelujah, praise Yahweh. These psalms praise Yahweh because he's delivered Israel as an individual, an Israelite, or the nation from some type of calamity. You have creation psalms that look around and say, thank you, God, for giving us everything that is here. You have wisdom, covenant, Torah psalms that praise God for having spoken into the world. So we're not left guessing like the ancient nations who didn't know what their gods wanted from them. And maybe their gods changed their mind every day. But we have a God who's revealed himself to us. He's told us what he expects so we can know what pleases him and what's best for us. That's what the Wisdom Covenant Torah Psalms are all about. The Royal Enthronement Psalms praise Yahweh for being king over the whole world, even at times when it seems like he's not, when people are trying to dethrone him, when we have dethroned him from our lives. And for the Davidic king, the human ruler that God has appointed over his people, they praise God for a just king. Then you have the Ascent Psalms that praise God for having a corporate assembly, where you can go and worship. These were pilgrimage hymns sung on the way to Passover or Pentecost or the Feast of Booths. These are what I call the songs you sing in your van on the way to church. (laughs) I'm, I'm excited to go to church. What songs do you sing on the way to church? These ascent psalms are the songs we need to be singing now as people need to be flocking back to the assembly. There's something about the assembly that you can't have when you're on your own. It's wonderful as it as it has been at times to be with our individual families or smaller communities. There's something about being in the house of the Lord with God's people that you don't have in isolation. And so the Ascent Psalms are all about how joy-filled we are when we're together with God's people. And then you have the confidence Psalms like Psalm 23 that say, even though I might be going through a dark valley right now, I know that you're with me. I know that things are going to get better a great psalm to sing right now through COVID. In fact, if we were going to have a separate category or maybe a a subcategory for a COVID song, what kind of song would we sing about COVID? I'm assuming it would be a lament song, but maybe we need to spend a little more time talking about lament. I'll come back around to this. Maybe you'll help me write a COVID song that we could sing in church. And how might that go? Let's think about that in just a moment. So some applications here. I think it might be fruitful as we look at the balance of lament and praise psalms within their canon to think about balancing out lament and praise within our worship services. I know of some churches, one in Memphis, for example, that has a lament service every year. 
Uh, the preacher there says, I don't tell people when the lament service is because they won't come. So we just surprise them. But the good news is that everybody probably that day has something to be sorrowful for. Just like at any given time, we can be joy-filled about something. So what would the lament service look like? Well, just like it sounds. It's recognizing during this year we've had people pass away. We've had people struggle with disease, people that didn't overcome the disease, uh, people who are going through addictions, people who have separations, divorce, people who have other types of ailments, misfortune, calamity, doubts, and just bringing all that before God, you know, really being authentic and saying, we don't all have to pretend that things are good every week. This week, we let down our guard and express the things that are not going so well in our life. Now, as we'll see, lament services don't end in lament, but that's where you can start. Or maybe every service or a number of services can begin and follow the lament process. So maybe the worship leader who begins, uh, maybe it's a, a poem that's read, maybe it's a story someone shares, maybe it's a song, maybe it's a prayer, begins with a somber tempo and says, uh, you know, I, I know not all of us are coming here today um, uh, with a smile on our faces. Some of us may have just had a fight with our kids or our spouse on the way here, and uh, we may have just lost our jobs. We may not know about the future. And so I want us to begin here recognizing all of that and then use some type of venue, a song, a prayer to acknowledge that. Then the way the lament psalm works is it works toward hope. So it doesn't end there, but it starts there. So everybody's kind of starting in the same place. So maybe have that within services from time to time. Maybe even have services for each of these subgenres. Can you imagine a service that was just confidence? You know, just this whole service is going to be about confidence. This whole service is going to be geared around creation, praising God for the world that he has made. What about an imprecatory service? Are there any enemies, any competitors, any diseases that are facing us that we might need to address? So what would a COVID service actually look like in Israel as they work through these kinds of songs? And then... Think about a service of lament and praise, because at any given time, you don't just have people lamenting. You don't have just people praising. You know, as worship leaders, you've got the whole gambit there. So how do you do both? Well, I love what Ezra did in Ezra chapter 3. He said, as they were laying the foundation for the temple, you've got the younger generation that sees it, and they're celebrating because they've been in captivity. They've never seen a temple of Yahweh before. And then you have the older generation that's crying because they saw Solomon's temple. There's no way this temple is going to be as grand as that temple was. But it says at a distance, whether people were crying in sorrow or celebrating out of joy, the voices mingled together to create one unified sound. So there was no distinguishing them. I think that's what we are to do in our worship services, create an environment where people can feel welcome to bring whatever emotion they have. Now, we don't want them to keep the lamenting emotion. By the end, we want them to be hope-filled, but bring whatever emotion you have. And whether you're singing out of sorrow or singing out of joy, the voices can mingle together. So there's no distinction to God or man. We're all bringing it before the Lord. We don't have to hide those emotions, pretend they're not good. We use them in our services to mingle together because if we're not lamenting today, we may be the ones lamenting tomorrow. And so we need a place to be able to do that. And the church is a perfect place for that. Now, if these are the two main types, if you look within these types, you'll see a form. Now, these forms are intended to help us appreciate the Psalms. You can share as much or as little of this with your congregation as you would like. But I just want you to notice that in this example of a lament psalm, you have the move from the lament being addressed to God to being specific about why the lamenter is sorrowful. Usually it's an observation about some kind of injustice. Um, God, you have left us without a temple, as Psalm 74 is all about. And the consequence is the nations are mocking us. How long will you abandon us? Uh, the question is posed toward God and expects an answer. Uh, this was a question one of my students asked me last week, and she has a standing meeting uh, on Zoom with me. How long will I feel abandoned by God? It's surprising. Go through the Psalter. Underline how many times people wonder where God is. This is a time with miracles galore, right? And yet they feel so distant from the Lord. Is there anyone in your congregation who's doubting God, who doubts his presence in their life? Well, there's a psalm for that. There's a lot of psalms for that. 
And those psalms help us to feel that it's okay to have these kinds of questions and to know where to address them and to know where the answer is to be found rather than all the cheap substitutes that people will go after to find solutions to these doubts today. There's an affirmation of trust. I know that you'll take care of me the way you took care of my ancestors, the way you took care of me last year. And this is usually the pivotal moment, the most important point where there's this but or nevertheless. Even though I don't feel your presence, I believe it will come back one day. And there's the anticipation that when God does respond, that the worshiper will once again praise him and teach others about him. And then it ends in praise. Even though the worshiper may not feel like there's anything at that moment to praise God for, they're anticipating the moment when they will praise Him, so they're already doing it. Now, what can we take from this structure? I think the movement is very important, that we should allow people to feel this grief but not stay there, find the hope toward the end of this psalm. Also, while some of these psalms have a historical context, not all of them do, And I think that's intentional. I don't think we should spend too much time in the Psalms doing historical exegesis. Uh, The Psalm 74 is rooted in the exile, but if you spend too much time talking about Israel's experience in exile and never talk about COVID today or whatever the struggle is that you're addressing that Sunday, then people won't feel that application. And so spend less time in the Psalms with the historical context, work toward the modern implementation. One model I like you all probably know about is Wilson's four pages. The problem in the text, the problem in the world. Solution in the text, solution in the world. It's an easy structure to model a sermon after. And so what's the problem in the text? The destruction of the temple. What's the problem in the world? Whatever destruction, whatever enemy, disease, heartache, it's going on in your context. Anxiety, disease, sin, misfortune. If you don't like the word enemy, use the word competitor. Everybody has a competitor, even if they don't have an enemy. What's the solution in the text? To affirm trust in God. God will deliver me from this competitor. And you can do this with modern songs. So throughout the slides, I have some examples of of songs that were in my songbook growing up and are still in the songbook of the churches that I worship at. Like, does Jesus care? Hear me when I call. It is well. These are the kinds of songs that are lament in nature but end in hope. You can use every act of service, uh, whether it's a prayer or a song, even the announcements, to communicate this tempo from lament to praise. Think about structuring the entire service around this. And I really love how I'm seeing in preaching today a move from knowledge to action. Less care about what our members know and more concern about what they do with that knowledge. We want them to be transformed, to act differently, to actually be faithful people who feel God's presence rather than just know that He exists. So a couple of examples briefly here of penitential laments. So Psalm 51, a familiar psalm of David when he is crying over his sin that he has committed, uh, his adultery and his murder. Uh, After he addresses this complaint to God, I like how in verses 1 through 6, He doesn't presume that God should forgive him just because he's David or that God has to forgive. We know from the prophets that God does not forgive someone who is not genuine, someone who's not sincere. So he comes to God believing that he needed to come to God to be forgiven. There has to be confession. And then within this psalm, we see that he recognizes the guilt that he is feeling even after he's probably already prayed for this. I don't know about you, but I've had people come up to me and say, why don't I feel forgiven? Like, there should be a, a felt forgiveness. And I wonder if that isn't why in the sacrificial system of Israel, they didn't have a guilt offering, a separate offering beside the sin offering that acknowledged guilt. And it usually required 20% being added to whatever it is that you had done that was wrong. It's not enough if you stole something just to give it back. You need to add something to it. And so if you've wronged someone, how do you make it right with them and add 20% to it? There's this idea of making things right in order to feel forgiven. David says he feels like he's been a sinner since the day of his birth. This gives you a great opportunity to teach about some bad theology out there, about original sin, how to read the Psalms and see exaggeration, hyperbole over literalism. You can reflect on Ezekiel, how Sin is not passed down from generation to generation any more than righteousness is. 
So we don't go to heaven because of our parents any more than we go to hell because of them. And how in the New Testament, the model is the child. We're supposed to be born again. We're supposed to become like little children. How could they be born in original sin? You could also look at the rest of this psalm and see how he's asking God to remove the sin permanently and to halt judgment so that the Spirit of God is not removed. And he also prays that God will restore his conscience so that he can once again know what's right and what's wrong, because sometimes we can sear our consciences to where we don't know the difference. And then I love this at the end. He says, and if, you, if and when you do so, I will teach others your ways. Uh, a few years back, we had the Duck Dynasty guys come to Harding, and I know they've circled around and talked to other places. You might have heard this speech, but they talked about the importance of transparency from 1 John, the importance of walking in the light. They said what that means to them is that they need to confess their sins publicly so that their sins can't hide in darkness anymore. And that means living out this life. Can you imagine a song written about your sins, sung in church? People know what you've done. It's hard for you to do it again. And maybe that's the point. He is completely transparent. He is completely open. He's confessing his sins. Is confession still happening in your church? How important is confession in the church? So confession, there's this move into making things right, this idea of mourning, feeling genuine sorrow, lament, and weeping, and then finally walking in the light. So some modern songs might be, Father, forgive us. I bring my sins to thee. Search me, O God. And you could add some of your favorites here. I love this image for the imprecatory psalms. This is exactly what the psalmist is asking for. Probably one of the more difficult parts of all Scripture to talk about. And so I'll be interested to get your thoughts on this. But this is in our canon. And one of the books I'll suggest in just a moment says it's difficult for him to not preach these parts since it's in the Bible without thinking that it's a lesser part of the Bible. But in the imprecatory psalms, what we have here is the psalmist asking for God's justice against the enemy. Now, I want you to notice that some of these are individuals asking for justice, maybe David against Saul. Others are national, Israel against Assyria. Some of these are crying for divine judgment. In fact, all of them are crying for divine judgment, not personal revenge. It's not David saying, I want to do this, but God, I want you to do this whenever you think it's right, if you think it's right, because I am being persecuted for being yours. If I weren't yours, this wouldn't be happening to me. It's because I'm in covenant with you this is happening to me, so please deliver me for your name's sake. A line from Psalm 23, a confidence psalm. This idea of it's all about God, not about me. Just look at these. I'm just going to briefly touch on them, but I just want you to see the tone and why this is a difficult part of the Bible. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler. Rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. So it's asking God to act as a warrior against the enemy. How so? By making them fall into the very ditch that they dug for the psalmist. They wanted to trap me, so let them fall into their own trap, to their own destruction. For zeal for your house has consumed me, the psalmist says. Jesus appropriates that to talk about how zeal for God's temple had consumed him to the point that he drove out the money changers. So Jesus enacts an imprecatory psalm, even quotes from it. You have Peter quoting from the imprecatory psalm, Psalm 109. May his days be few and may another take his office. Peter saying Judas got what he deserved. May someone more honorable take his place in this apostleship. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into fire, into miry pits, no more to rise. Yet this doesn't sound like what Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, about resisting the evil one, about turning the other cheek, about letting your enemies be prayed for. And in fact, in Paul's writings in Romans 12, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. It's as though he's showing a different fulfillment of that imprecatory psalm. How do you heap burning coals upon their head? By doing good for them, not by literally having burning fire fall upon them. So what are some applications from this that I draw As we think about preaching the problem in the text in the world, well, there's plenty of enemies, plenty of competitors we could talk about. 
So what's the solution? It seems like, given the imprecatory psalms mixed with Matthew 5 and Romans 12 and 13, that Christians can cry out for divine judgment. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We can ask God, like the martyrs around the throne in Revelation, to bring about judgment. But Christians should see the courts as an option for doing that if they've been wronged. Romans 13 talks about the courts or messengers of God bringing about justice for those who've been abused in relationships and people who have been uh, harmed in other ways. But they can also forgive personal wrongs. You don't have to seek those avenues. They are there for you by God. Crying out in all of this, though, for God's judgment, not for personal revenge, not because someone cuts you off and that God should harm them, but rather for if God's reputation's on the line, if in fact you have been harmed because you're a Christian, as Jesus would say, if you're being persecuted for righteousness sake, for doing the right thing, not being persecuted for doing the wrong thing, that there is no judge justice for that. You, you got what you deserved. And to realize if God grants the judgment in this lifetime, realize that's part of being a part of God's covenant people. Don't gloat about it, but recognize that the same could happen to you if you're on the other side. And one day it will happen to all of us as we're all brought into judgment all held accountable for what we've done. So if what you're praying for doesn't come to pass today, it will come about, as as Revelation talks about, God hurling uh, the judgment upon the earth so that all of those who have done wrong are made uh, to be held accountable for it. So songs we sing today like this, Roll the Gospel Chariot, you know, uh, over the devil. If the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. He will make a way where there seems to be no way. The idea of God intervening within history to make things right. Now, I'd save the praise psalms for the end because I figured if there's one genre we know how to preach, it's probably the praise psalms. But I did want to give you a couple of examples here very briefly, and then we'll have some questions. So if you look at the structure here for the praise psalm, you'll notice that it's basically calling people to praise God because He has done something good in your life or in the community's life. Even in times like these, we should think in our services, how do we talk about all the good that's going on right now? What are some good things that have come out of COVID? And then the reasons are specific, either because of God's nature, God is faithful and good always, or because of God's specific actions. Have some people come to faith? Are more people streaming online services than they've ever been before? I mean, is that something to talk about, to praise God for? And then a renewed call to praise. Now that you know, if you didn't know before, why we should praise God, everybody praise God. So it almost begins with one person's testimony, and then everybody joins in. That's all it takes in our services, someone to have a story of God's faithfulness to get everybody else praising God. That's the move from the individual toward the assembly. And so some ideas here of how you might preach these kinds of psalms. It's the leper kind of idea that Jesus was so grateful when the leper came back and said thanks. How many of our services are genuine thanks services where we're naming the kinds of things God has done to heal so-and-so of cancer, to help so-and-so's relationship so they didn't get divorced? Are we coming back to God? We had this uh, just yesterday at our, our Bible class. We went back through our prayer list from last year and looked at how God had answered all those prayers. Do we have a service that genuinely praises God for specific things that he's done in our assembly? So-and-so is back with us today. We're so grateful for that. And so individual and communal acts of praising God, teaching people how to do this in daily life so mom, dad, and the kids are seeing gratefulness in every day, not just waiting for Sunday to do this. And so you can see in the covenant psalm, there's this answer to the question, is there an advantage to being a believer over an unbeliever? I think so. And the covenant psalms say there's something better about being part of the family of God than not being part of the family. And so we sing the song, we're part of the family, along with other covenant-type psalms. And if you're going to sing the ascent psalms, this idea of is there something about the assembly that should cause people to want to flock to it? The answer is yes. There's people, there's presence of God that's felt. Uh, I used to have people that would come to my church, and I don't know about you, that would just come to the assembly and sit down and pray in the auditorium because they felt closer to God here than anywhere else. So I I know of one couple, in fact, that just really struggled, and they said that they wouldn't be able to pray together at home, so they'd come to church and pray. Some of you as preachers might feel like uh, your assembly connects better when they're out at camp, talking some about Carolina Bible Camp growing up. Some people on mountaintops, some people down the valleys. We need to help people connect to God wherever they connect to Him. And that's what these Ascent Psalms are talking about, finding a place where you can reconnect to remember what it was like back when 
Maybe that would make an interesting service. What were things like back when you were right with God? What were things like back when uh, your relationship was healthy? Going back to the honeymoon period in order to know how to move forward. So the wisdom psalms, for example, Psalm 1, which begins the Psalter on this note of wisdom, says that we shouldn't be spending time walking around with wicked people. Certainly don't stand up next to them because soon you'll be sitting down among them. There's a process to becoming wicked. You spend time around people until soon you're sitting and joining in with them. No, the righteous person, by contrast, meditates upon Torah, spends time with God every day and every night. And their actions, their words reflect God, not their peers. While their peers are being tossed to and fro by every fad and fashion, they don't know who they are, and so they're being blown around by these different um, trends. The righteous person is firmly rooted in who they are and their identity. And so God will judge the wicked, but the way of the righteous lasts forever. So you can take this psalm and talk about the two types of people there are. You can even use Ecclesiastes, Job, and Proverbs, wisdom books, to talk about how there are only two types of people, the wise man and the fool. There's only two destinations, heaven and hell. Now, people who say, I don't know if I'm wise or fool, you can ask them this. Are you more likely wise and you do a few foolish things, or are you more often foolish and you do a few wise things? Maybe a little bit easier to answer that kind of question than the other. The Torah Psalm, like Psalm 119, addresses uh, how great the Torah is. Um, it uses different words for how great the precepts and laws of the Lord are. The longest chapter in the Bible uses uh, all the letters in the Hebrew alphabet to talk about how we should pursue Scripture more than we pursue more money at our jobs and how His Word is a lamp to our feet, a light into our path. And Paul says that God's Scripture is far better than anything else, and it's sin, not Scripture, that gets us into trouble. So we could sing songs like, Give me the Bible, wonderful words of life, ancient words, you know, ever true, changing me and changing you, to help our members reflect on the importance of studying Scripture from wherever they are. Finally, an enthronement psalm, Psalm 24. Uh, even today, we practice this idea of uh, inauguration, putting someone else uh, on the throne, as it were. From the U.S. Capitol to the White House, we still have our uh, elect president ride in a sedan. Uh, this sedan idea comes from when ancient Israel would carry their king in a sedan chair from the battlefield where he won the decisive battle to the throne where he would rule as king. In Israel, though, they did not carry a human ruler. They carried their God in his Ark of the Covenant, seated upon the throne of Israel, as we see in these examples from Samuel. According to Psalm 24, the reason why Yahweh deserves to be the enthroned king of Israel and all nations is because he won the decisive battle at creation. He defeated chaos. He created everything and arranged it in such a pattern that everybody is obligated to serve him. This is why Jesus in the New Testament walks upon the waters, just as God in the Old Testament is the only one who can control the water. Why Jesus drives out demons, because he's the only one that can control the chaos. As we see in the middle part of Psalm 24, the question is raised, who then is worthy to be a subject to this king? And the answer is those who have clean hands and a pure heart, who do nothing false or swear deceitfully. Those who are innocent and pure inside and out. They're the ones who will be a part of God's kingdom. And then the processional makes its way to the palace with the king, and they, mar they march to the gate, and they say, open up the gate so the king of glory and his citizens might come in. And the people on the gate say, who is this king of glory that we should let him in? And they say, the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. And then you can imagine them going into the, assembly, going into the palace, sitting down there, and he rules over all forever. Now, of course, in the New Testament, we see Jesus who is riding in on a very humble beast from Jerusalem, uh, from, from where he is to Jerusalem, but he doesn't go to a palace. Instead, he goes to a cross, which I think should recast the way we envision Jesus' rule. And so the application here is that we need to enthrone the Lord over our lives, maybe in our congregations every single week, if not more regularly than that, uh, we need to help people to be pure and clean inside and out, 
and we need them to see the cross-centered model of rule, not the power or political model of the ancient kings. So we might sing songs like, Above all else, King of my heart, great is our God. So in closing, I believe that we as a church can balance the spirit of lament and praise in the content of our services and the tempo of the assembly in our daily lives. We can meet people where they are, but take them to where they need to be in a relationship with God by seeing these faithful, ancient followers of God like David and Solomon and praying and singing like them today. And to teach our members to have an authentic and lasting relationship with God and their fellow man in every emotion or emoji. All right, what, what kinds of questions? I, I cover a lot intentionally, so you'd have plenty to take with you. But are there any questions that you have about any of the particular genres uh, or about anything that was said today that we can talk about? We've, what we might do is, if you have a question, I might just ask you to repeat it. So that those who are watching online can hear it rather than uh, trying to pass one or two mics on the ground, we can do that. But I, I think I saw my little that direction. Yes. I didn't hear the first part. It, do I think it's because of what or culture? Oh. So the question is, uh, do we not have confession happening as often today because we're not talking about it enough, or is it more of a culture shift that it was more prevalent uh, before today? It may be a little bit of both. Um, I, I think that uh, I remember growing up and hearing a lot more about confession uh, it was almost an ex expectation people would come forward. Uh, now we have different directions people go and, and how they go about praying uh, for their particular uh, sins. I think there's also this balance of, you know, how much should we share and how much should we not share publicly. And I think also it is a cultural thing. Uh, some people, I've been a part of churches where you'd have the, the same young man come forward every single week confessing the same sins. And uh, at some point, there needs to be a talk about how do you avoid doing that same thing in the future so that we're not just living in confession, but also need to live in the, the new kind of life that's called for. Um, I think there is fear in certain uh, communities. Uh, if you share uh, too much with too many people, it could affect your job. It could affect other things. Uh, I think that there can be um, uh, a lot of things the devil does. I'm thinking of uh, someone... Uh, who confessed uh, spontaneously to a group of us about a sin that they were going through. And afterward, they immediately could see in their face, they said, I probably shouldn't have said that. And I went to them afterward and I said, that word you spoke first was from God. The word you spoke second was from the devil. Um, it is God who inspires us to speak and confess sin. It's the devil who wants to put it back in and make, make it as though we never said it to begin with. And so um, while there might be a, a proper protocol to go through for confession, to keep everybody you know, uh, safe, uh, I think that the Lord would have us to preach about confession, would have people be more open to confession. I think the problem is we have not created environments that are accepting of confession. Um, because if we were all open about it, uh, then we could all do it more. <laughs> but it takes someone leading the way in a community that can accept it because no one here is perfect but um, it's usually the fear that keeps the others from sharing. That would probably break down walls. One way I've seen this dealt with in a positive way is smaller groups. I think people are usually more open in smaller groups and trusting uh, friendships rather than uh, in some types of, of gatherings where you don't know who's who and so you're not so open in those cases. So yeah, I think we could preach more about it. I think our, I don't know if our culture will ever come around, but we don't have to wait for our culture. Uh, we, can, we can do it because God has called us to do it. Other questions? That's a great one. Yes? You mentioned an example of a congregation having a lament worship. Maybe you said your friend? Or Rodney else. Plunkett and, uh, does a lament service every year in Memphis. What does that look like? Mm -hmm. 
the lament service, I heard it on tape and uh, from the service. Yeah, this is, this is a long time ago, right? Uh, now, they still do it as far as I know, but this, this is how I came. It's one of those things like doing research. I found a tape in a yard sale, and I found that he had done that, and then I contacted him and asked him if they still do that kind of thing. But the tape itself um, was basically, as I, I outlined, you begin with some type of acknowledgement that we're doing this service. You didn't know we were doing this service. We're doing this service because at any given time during the year, something's going on. So this is the time, kind of like the Day of Atonement was for Israel, we're bringing all of us to God at once. Every day during Israel's life, they would confess sins and offer sacrifices. The Day of Atonement was once a year in the middle of the year to acknowledge all of sin and to ask for forgiveness for the whole community. So that's what the lament service is based on, this idea of once a year, we want to bring all of the concerns to God. It could be in the middle of the year, the end of the year, the beginning of the year, um, and begins in sorrow. And you might have uh, already a, a plan of what you would talk about, or if you have a certain setup where people could share these things in smaller groups, and then you go about transitioning from the specific sorrows to what has God done in the past that would show us some confidence in His ability to do this in the future. And then talk about specific times in our lives where God's delivered us and God's been faithful to our community and individuals. And then end in, in hopeful praise that God will one day do this. And as I, I mentioned, I think this should go through every part of the service from communion talk to announcements to the song service uh, to the sermon um, to the contribution. Everything should include this. Yeah, I think uh, there's a few songs scattered throughout that I thought of when I thought of each of these. You can add to them from the canons within your church. Some of, your, uh, some of you might feel more comfortable using more contemporary songs that have been um, sung. Uh, so you kind of appeal to those kinds of things. Even like Paul quoting the poets of his own day, it might be that you have a song that you know, maybe is a country music song that might identify the emotions or relations. I think the idea is helping, um, and I, I, some reason I, I think of children when I'm thinking about this, but helping our young people especially uh, learn how to connect their emotion with one of these emotions, to read that song, to pray that song and sing that song, and then be delivered from the sin that, uh, that tells us that these emotions are, are wrong, you know, or be delivered from the fear, uh, the guilt that uh, starts these emotions, but maybe uh, can direct us towards something more hope-filled. So I, I just think of, um, uh, without naming specific songs, other ones I've named, just giving people a, a model of how to do this and letting them pick songs specifically for them. Yes. I love that. That's a great idea. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you remind me. Yeah, we, if we were to write a COVID song together, how might we do that? What would be some lines if we were going to write a lament song? How might that COVID song begin? Who do we trust? Okay, that's a great first line. Then what? Yes. Uh, what side of the party do you 
It didn't work for you. Did, did it work for anybody? Some people worked for us, some didn't. I'll check on that afterward. I apologize. So we've got who, who, do, I, who do we trust? What will be another line of this COVID song? In the Lord. Maybe the answer already comes. Who do I trust? In the Lord. Next line. Yes. Our joy doesn't come from our circumstances, but it comes from the Lord. Our joy doesn't come from our circumstances, it comes from the Lord. All right, one more line. What's the source of hope? What, where are we looking for hope? Where is the source of hope? Where are we looking for hope? And then we need one more after that. Our hope is in the Lord, right? Hope is in the Lord. These are the kinds of things that we can do in our churches, with our churches, through whatever is going on, giving them a model, giving them examples, and then uh, having them connect to those and to make them their own. Any other questions?